Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. I did not really plan to come into AA and be a member of AA. My sister had eight children, and she wanted me to get sober so I could raise them because she thought she was going to die. And I told her, Kate, if I never took a drink in my life and I had to face raising eight kids, I'd start. So I had no idea of stopping at all, but I had to get her off my back. She was always at me, and my mother died when I was 11, and she took over, and it was pretty tough. Can you hear me back there in this? No, oh, all right, I yell. Now can you hear me? Talking the white one, which is, a, all right, how about now? Yeah, well, we found out. Did you hear? Yeah? All right, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> he, they want me to start all over again. My name is Nancy, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> I had my first drink when I was 14 years of age. I had my last drink when I was 31 years of age, and I am now 83. Now, this time we heard me. <laughs> uh, my sister wanted me to stop drinking because she had eight children and she had asthma, and she thought she was going to die. And she wanted me to get sober because she wanted me to raise those children. And I told her that if I never had a drink in my life, that if I was faced with raising eight kids, I would start. And she really kept at me, and I had to get her off my back one way or the other. She came to see me once. I had a revolting habit of when I was sober, I would say, Hi, Katie, how are you? But when I was drinking, I'd, I'd use an English accent so she wouldn't know that I was drinking. And I'd say, Catherine, darling, how are you? And she would know that I was drunk. So she came down this day with a chocolate cake and said, if you take a piece of this cake, I'll go home. Well, I was drinking, I was in bed, and although I denied that I was an alcoholic, I didn't deny the fact that social drinking is not drinking in bed. I knew that. So I had to get rid of her some way, so I said, there's an outfit in New York City that knows has a bead on, on this thing, this drinking thing. So if you will, call them. Uh, I'll go. And she said no. Her husband had a best friend in AA. Would I see him? And I said, of course I would. I'd love to see him. And that was a big lie. But anyhow, I said I would see him. He did not show up that day, the next day, or the following day. So I called her and said, where is the genius that's going to stop my drinking? 
She said, he's talking it over with his fellow members to see if you qualified. Now, this really raised my temper, and I was ready for him. But she called him and evidently told him not to come anywhere near me. I was violent. So he didn't come, but he sent his son. And his son had the big book. And he gave me the big book and a brown paper bag and ran for his life. He was scared to death. So I read the book and I put it behind the logs in the fireplace. It was summertime and I didn't want to join AA. But I did read the book first before I did that. In the fall of 1944, I was really, I had this terrible hangover. And so I called this man and I said, I've read the book, how come I'm drinking? And he didn't ever answer that question. He said, would you like to go to a meeting tonight? And I said, I don't know, what are they like? He said, well, they're very nice and everybody there is just like you. So I said, well, what do they look like? He said, they look like you. I said, oh, they must be gorgeous. So I went to the meeting that night, and I went to a, my, a group meeting the following Friday, and there were six members in that group, and they were absolutely the most wonderful people I have ever met in my life. They were just so considerate and then so understanding, and I just, I just loved them. My drinking was such that I, I didn't get into real big trouble. I was, this was in my twenties. There were no drugs around in those days, so I didn't get into drugs. But I, uh, I drank every day. And I, I just, that was my life. Drinking was my life. And, when things would happen, I didn't have an excuse to drink. I didn't need an excuse to drink. I was just drinking. For instance, when my uncle died, my uncle Willie, whom I adored, uh, I didn't start drinking. I was drinking when he died. So I just kept right on drinking. And that's the way I do my AA, the same way as I did my drinking. I just keep right on doing AA. One day at a time, I don't... I don't take it on a week basis or even a two-day basis. I take it on a one-day basis. And it works for me that way. And it works beautifully for me that way. So that I can't tell you what has happened in 51 years and 10 minutes, but I can tell you that I have really loved being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I wouldn't have it any other way. This has been the most wonderful way of life that I can, I can tell you how I have experienced it in great joy. And I have insisted, as they say in the book, I insist in enjoying my life. And I do. I enjoy every day, regardless of whether it's a good day, bad day, or indifferent. I enjoy the fact that I have my sanity. I have my fellow members, I have my family that I love so much and they love me, and all of that has been given to me and it has been given to me by you and by my higher power as I 
conceived that higher power to be a very, very caring, wonderful, wonderful power in my life. So I wish you all well and continue to have a wonderful time. I'm going to have to go home early because we have a family reunion today. Someone has come home from from Washington and she's going to be here today and we have to have a dinner for her at 5 o'clock. So I'm going to have to go home. But it was wonderful being with you and I have enjoyed very much this party and I enjoy being your fellow member and I hope, I hope that if, I must tell you that 51 years of sobriety is not keeping me sober. What's keeping me sober is a 24-hour program and the love that I have for my higher power and for all of you. You mean a great deal to me. And because of you and because of my faith that has been given to me through this program, I enjoy a beautiful, beautiful way of life. Thank you very much. Hi, everybody. I'm Denise, and I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic. This is great. Um, I looked around today, and I said, this signifies our sobriety, the sense of freedom. How many of us, towards the end of our sobriety, hid behind curtains and doors and dark rooms? And here we are out in the sunlight of the spirit, and this is just fantastic. I want to thank the committee. Russ has just been wonderful. He has been in contact with me throughout this process. I uh, hope I've been supportive of my experience, strength, and hope in doing this, uh, the speaker meeting on Saturday night is, is another way that we can give to each other through, through service. I think once we experience something on this level, we can help those who are willing to volunteer and uh, carry out service in AA, too. And it has been a joy uh, just sharing with him and speaking with him and encouraging him and thanking him for the great job that he did and Ken and all the other wonderful people that I met. I told Nancy, I think I'm running with the right kind of crowd. When we moved, came in today, we got to get a front row spot and got to sit out here. And those are some of the gifts and joys of sobriety and the willingness to uh, be of service. But I'm very grateful to be here today. Um, AA is the most wonderful thing that has happened to me in this program uh, or in this lifetime. I feel like AA has given me a chance to be a whole different person than the person I was the first 31 years of my life. Even though only 13 of that was drinking, even prior to the drinking, I lived in my head. And it's so wonderful to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and to be able to live in the now and not to be trapped in my mind and to be analyzing everything and thinking everybody's thinking something of that they're not even thinking or doing or whatever or thinking everybody has a motive or whatever it is, that craziness that exists between our ears that we go through. And I know through Alcoholics Anonymous and the wonderful sponsors that I've had and uh, the 12 steps and my relationship with my higher power, I no longer have to live in my head. Yeah, there are times like all of us, we go into our sickness and one of the first sim- uh, symptoms to me that I'm back into my sickness is my head wants to run with it for a little while. And when I get that symptom, I know what I have to do about it. Usually it is talking to another higher power, uh, to my higher power and also to another member of this program. 
from the, it's, it's just so wonderful too that this is Founders Day weekend. I got sober in Akron, Ohio, and I got, had the privilege of the first three years of my sobriety being an active member of those Founders Day celebrations where people from all over the world came to Akron, Ohio to pay tribute to Alcoholics Anonymous. And little did I know that God had intended for me to get the message real big. He not only uh, not only found out I was an alcoholic while I lived in Akron, but the founding place of AA being right there, I couldn't turn away too much. Uh, there was a lot of respect and loyalty to this program, just as it exists everywhere else. Just to tell you a little bit about um, how it was, um, I know I'm a real alcoholic, like the big book talks about. There's no doubt in my mind. I love to drink. I loved uh, the way that I felt when I drink, especially in the beginning. And uh, I tried to fit drinking into every single activity that I was involved in, whether it was a sporting activity or whether it was um, a lunch or a dinner or uh, watching a movie or going to a ball game or whatever it was. I tried to find a way that alcohol could play a part in that. And uh, I was very addicted to alcohol, and uh, I really grieved alcohol deeply when I found out that I was an alcoholic, and, and in order to recover, I had to let go of uh, my best friend, which was alcohol, because I took alcohol everywhere with me, and alcohol did everything with me. Um, I don't think there was a a more fun way to clean a house than being drunk. <laughs> uh, I, I, it used to be me and that bottle of wine and some good music on the stereo, and it was crazy. I, I talk about this sometimes at the women's meetings may relate to this, but some of you men may have related to it in other activities, that um, when I drank and um, and cleaned house, I it was like, so chaotic. I'd start in one room, but then I'd run to another room, and then I'd be over in this room, and then I'd be in that room, never finishing anything, but somehow tying it all up at the end. And uh, it was like a game. I don't know. It was like my own little party, and uh, it was better if everybody was out of the house because I had my own little, you know, my game. My friend was there, alcohol, and I could use it and drink it as much as I wanted. It was a reward, and it was energy, and it worked for me. But... um I also lived and died for happy hours. Happy hours were a big part of my drinking. Friday afternoon, 3 o'clock, I was a teacher, and you better believe I was down that driveway and heading about a half hour from the school system I taught at, and I was ready to party. And uh, the weekend started at 3 o'clock on Friday. Of course, they never ended during the week either, but uh, 3 o'clock Friday was serious time to start the weekend and kick it off. And uh, I enjoyed every part of those happy hours. I was one of those people who would go around to all the teachers' doors. I found out afterwards they wondered why, how I could keep this all going. But I'd be the one on Friday morning at 8 o'clock knocking on everybody's door trying to get a tally of who was going to go to happy hour after work. You know, I mean, I wanted others to drink with me. It was a big part of the scheme. And I also, whenever I had people at my house, I made sure I had plenty of alcohol all different kinds, all different mixes, everything, because I wanted you to not be able to say no. I wanted to be able to find something you could drink so you could drink with me. And I love the company uh, around drinking. Uh, but the way it all started for me is um, I came from a family of five brothers. I'm the only girl. I'm third in line. My parents, my mother was Irish. 
and had a big Irish Catholic family that met on at least one day a week at Grandma McDonald's, and they sat around the table, and all the aunts and uncles drank their ale and sang their Irish songs, and one aunt who did not drink alcohol because it didn't work for her used to take all the kids and we'd go over into another room and Aunt Margaret would play the piano and try to keep us kids entertained Why those who were very curious like myself would scoot over and want to find out what was happening with the, in that other room with that large table and all those people drinking and laughing and telling their stories and um, I kept getting drifted back to the other room but uh or pulled back by my aunt, but I've made a mental impression that that's how I wanted to be when I was an adult. That looked like so much fun just to be sitting around and talking, telling stories and drinking. And um, that was my first recollection of, the, of what drinking was. Other than that, when I was a child, my dad was the drinker. Uh, my mother somehow uh, in his work practices kept him very involved until we were all about 18 and started drinking at home. But I only saw my dad once really so out of it that he was crawling along the floor after a bachelor party, and uh, he was quite sick, and my mother was yelling at him and just told me, go to back to bed, we'll talk about it in the morning. And that was when one of those other first things happened, where you see something and you don't talk about it. You learn that as a child in an alcoholic home, and I learned that very well. And I learned that in my relationships, you have a conflict and you just don't talk about it. And uh, so I got real used to that, of seeing something and just burying it. But anyway, um, my drinking started when I was 18, and I went off to college. I tried for the first 18 years of my life, like I told you, I did a lot of deep thinking, had a lot of uh, living on the outside, thinking if I could just get the outside um, together and get involved in enough activities and uh, get my resume looking real good for college and uh, all this stuff that I, that I would have done what I was supposed to do. But I wasn't very happy at that time in my life, uh, very fearful, and, um, and felt like I had tried for 18 years to please everybody and screw that. It's time to go off and be myself and do what I wanted to do. And that's when I was introduced to alcohol at the bars of uh, Ohio University in Athens, Ohio. If any of you are from Ohio or know of, of Ohio University, it's a town that consisted of two downtown blocks with about 30 bars. And it was alcoholic paradise. And 18 was the drinking age. So I was in my glory. And the first day I was there, I was invited to a happy hour with all the freshmen. And it was a dollar at the door, and it was keg beer, and it was all you could drink. And, boy, I had a blast. And the first thing that I realized was that when I drank, um, my thinking stopped. I didn't have to live in my head, and I could laugh, and uh, I could enjoy the people around me. And that really worked for me. I enjoyed that sense of freedom. And the other thing that worked for me along with that was that I had no one to go home and face because my parents were about three and a half hours away. So drinking at the college campus really took off for me, and it progressed pretty rapidly. Um, I know I first kept it to the weekends, and I would, you know, watch how much I drank. I did the typical thing that any textbook alcoholic or alcoholism would tell you. You know, it's, it's a progressive disease, and it surely was. Um, I never having it in our system. It's amazing how when we first drink, you know, our tolerance is there, but in probably we still can consume more than the average, than the normal drinker. But I, about four beers or so, I couldn't feel my front teeth and I knew it was time to 
slow it down a bit. And I went through all the sicknesses and, you know, you know, feeling sick after you drank and that. And I always figured it was just the combination of what I drank or ate. So it never was the alcohol. It was just what dynamics around that could I change. And um, about my sophomore year, I met my uh, spouse, my uh, first spouse that after 21 years of marriage, we divorced last year, but we did meet in uh, at Ohio University. And what we liked about each other was that we drank, went our own way, and if something happened the night before, when we got up in the morning, we didn't have to talk about it because <laughs> it was what we learned as children. We just had conflict and buried it. And uh, so we got along real well in the, in the nightlife. And we, when we left uh, Ohio U, we got married. And um, he was about three years uh, further down the road than I was as far as his career path. I had about three years to finish. And when we got out, we got married immediately and moved and looked for a, an apartment with two room, two bedrooms. And the first bedroom, of course, was ours. The second was not to entertain guests, but to set up our own bar. And uh, we had a second refrigerator, and we had the wooden uh, bar with the nice little metal, um, you know, those little things that hang over the jars, you know, that say bourbon and, and all the nice things. I was so attracted to everything about alcohol, all the neon signs, you know, that you put up. And, uh, and we entertained like crazy. We couldn't figure out why we weren't being able to save money like all our other college friends. But we were spending uh, practically... I don't know, a large percentage of our income on alcohol and have, and entertaining with alcohol. And that progressed. Um, you know, we'd have all the fighting that would go on or the people would come over who would get into spats, you know, the craziness. But I was so used to it, it didn't bother me. But when, I, when we were about two years uh, married, I found out that I was pregnant with our first daughter. And I tried to go through a little bit of denial with that myself. I didn't even want to admit till I was about three months pregnant that I was pregnant. And the reason was I knew deep in my heart that how in the heck was I going to raise a child when I didn't even know how to take care of myself. And I knew that, but I didn't want to voice it. And uh, so eventually when I saw that other people were getting excited about this whole experience, I was willing to talk about it. And, um, and I was able to say to stay sober during the time by the grace of God. But after uh, Jenny was born and there was about three months I was home with her, I looked around the house and I had that feeling many of us alcoholics do. I thought, all right, we've achieved everything that you're supposed to do in life. You know, I have, uh, I finished my four years of college. I got married. We have two cars in the driveway. We have a home in the country. We have our little dog. And uh, I have a, my first child. And, uh, I was bored. I was absolutely bored. I looked around the house and I thought, if this is all there is, I don't know what I'm going to do. And the next thought that came into my mind was, well, go back to school. Um, when you go back to school, you probably can meet up with another crowd and happy hours can start again and your drinking crowds can grow again and uh, there you go. you got a perfect out for getting out of the house. So I went to uh, Kent State and pursued my master's degree and did end up, and of course went into counseling, because anyone who has, I find out if you if you feel you're pretty screwed up, you usually go into a field like that to try to help figure yourself out. And I went into a counseling program, and it was a two-year program, and yes, my drinking did progress, and yes, the late hours did progress, and 
I remember I came home one night and I said to my husband, oh, I got stopped by the police and he told me the next time he's going to take me in and he looked at me like, you know, how disgusting. I wish he would have taken you tonight, you know, and uh, I was always feeling sorry for myself and it's amazing now. I'm sure those of you who have uh, people, family members or friends who are still drinking and they tell you the stories, uh, you can see the, the craziness involved. But when, when we're involved in our own drinking drama, we can't see how crazy it all is. It all makes sense to us, and we do feel victimized. We feel like the world's out against us. And uh, I, could see the ins- I couldn't see the insanity, and um, it just started getting worse and worse. Our relationship at home got, got real stressful. I'm very grateful, and Nancy and I were talking a little bit about this on the way over today. By the grace of God, my daughter did have a good person in her life. I was not a good mother back then. Uh, if you're a drinking mother, it's very difficult to be very much of a homemaker and very caring towards your children, and it, it was tough. Uh, plus, I didn't have a mother who, who provided a lot of emotional support growing up, and so I really didn't know what to do with this child other than to, to dress it pretty and, uh, you know, take it to dance classes and do the things I saw other people doing. And I felt I had no relationship with this child. It was really sad. But I had a wonderful babysitter that was very connected to her. And, you know, she she would call me and she'd say, I think it's time for Jenny's first dental appointment. And I'd thank her and I'd get off the phone and I was so resentful at her. Because damn her, she's trying to raise my daughter. And yet I wasn't. You know, I mean, this mixed message that we would play games in our head. We were so mad when somebody tried to help us, yet we needed the help. And, you know, be it an alcoholic to try to refuse anybody trying to help them. So those are the kinds of things that happened when the, you know, and I'm very grateful, though, because Jen did have somewhat of a support growing up. But when she was about six, um, the school system I was teaching in decided to send some people to some training, and there was this group out of Minneapolis that taught uh, community intervention, and what they realized is that children, uh, we didn't know what to do with the kids in the school who were drinking, and we used to send them home, and, and we thought that was, you know, the way to do it, and all they would do when we suspended them would go home and drink some more. So... We got involved in this program called Community Intervention that helped to look at drug and alcohol addiction as a sickness. And uh, I was asked to go, and the first couple days there, we were asked, within the first hour, we were asked to not drink or use drugs for that week of 60 hours of training. And I was just kind of blown away at that statement. And yet at the same time, I was like, wow, I never thought of that, giving up drinking for a whole week. And I thought to myself, the woman who said something about that really made an impression with me. And somehow I believed in what she was trying to say. And basically the bottom line was, how can you ask anybody to do anything you're not willing to do yourself? And so uh, they asked all of us to abstain. So I went into the first workshop that day. They let us all out of this big group of 80 people into these smaller workshops. And the first man who spoke introduced himself as a drug addict and alcoholic, and I thought, oh, how sad for him. Poor guy, can't drink and party anymore. And uh, as he started telling his story, and as he started describing the the progression of alcoholism and the steps that one takes as they go downhill into the disease, I was just absolutely blown away. I had one of those 
spiritual experiences of an educational variety that the big book talks about. And I was able to see myself in those graphs he was showing on the board. I was doing the things emotionally and feeling the things that he was talking about in my life. And uh, there was a sense of excitement, and yet at the same time, I was just in, you know, didn't know what to do about it. Didn't know who to talk about it. I was with the school principal, and I didn't think it, was, it would be real neat to turn to him and say, guess what, I'm one of those. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a drug addict. And so I just kind of sat there, and I was just for about the four days of the training. I couldn't wait to get back and hear more about this illness. And I don't know about you, but when I found out I was an alcoholic, I couldn't get enough. I couldn't get enough information. I couldn't get enough understanding. I couldn't I couldn't learn enough fast enough because they were talking about exactly stuff that was going on with me, and I couldn't I couldn't understand what was happening to me because I'd be out, you know, one of these nights where I'd be going out to drink, and there was a part of me that was, yeah, this is great, and then another part of me, an inner voice that said, how did you get from there to here? And I didn't know how the progression had taken me under and how I had gotten where I was. Anyway, uh, through that week, I realized um, that by the fourth day, we were supposed to share in a group about our alcohol and drug addiction with everybody else that was um, in our small group and talk about it and get some support. And so there was about eight of us in the small group, and the facilitator happened to be that woman I was quite impressed with the first day. And um, we sat around, the first couple people shared, and I was going to go in there fully intending to let them know how wonderful and the things I did and I found out I was alcoholic. And then after I heard the first couple people share, and they had no experience like mine, um, you know, they just either weren't drinking or had drunk, drank a few drinks or had a drink every so often. They were real social drinkers. So when it came to me, I went to lie. And I had another spiritual experience. I, I had what, what, what we talk about in this program is God did for me what I couldn't do for myself. I went to lie because I was such a profound liar at that time in my life when I came into this program. I had stories that I could just tell you. I could just make them up. You know, you needed an alibi to run home with? Let me tell you one. Um, I, you know, I was constantly doing that kind of stuff. And I went to lie. And instead, God did for me what I couldn't do for myself. And the words came out, I'm an alcoholic. And this group of seven other people went, looked at me like, what are you saying? And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, what did I just say? You know, I'm looking back at my, kind of at myself going, woo. And all of a sudden it hit me that I had just admitted what I knew to be true. And I put my head down and I started to sob. And I felt like such a weight was lifted. And I realized for the first time in my life, all those years I spent lying and trying to pretend and trying to be somebody somebody wanted me to be, that it was when I was truthful that people came forward. That was when people wanted to be around me. That was when I truly felt this connection between me and other people. And this woman that was the facilitator said to me, Denise, don't worry about this here, son. We're going to have some time, and everything will work out, and you'll see that everything's falling in the perfect order. And uh, we want you to talk to somebody, and we'll get around to that. And, and she said, don't forget that that pain you're feeling is years and years of pain that you have stuck and did not know what to do with. And you're safe here, and we're going to help you. 
and it was the most wonderful, encouraging words. And Thursday of that week, I met a woman who was going to, the following Tuesday, I'd set up an appointment, and she was going to do my assessment, which is, for those of you who don't know, someone sits down with you, and you kind of tell them your story, basically, and then they tell you whether you need treatment or not. But I didn't know that. I just knew I was going to this woman. And um, so I met her on Thursday night, and I went up to her, and I said, Emily, I have um, five days now that I haven't drank, and I'm coming to see you on Tuesday. And I said, do you think I should go out and have one last drunk before I come see you, or um, do you think I should stay sober? And she just laughed. She says, Denise, you're a real alcoholic. I can't answer that for you. She said, uh, you're going to have to make a decision. Whatever you do is going to be your choice, and it's fine. Just come show up at 10 o'clock on Tuesday. So I showed up on Tuesday, and I felt real sorry for myself over the weekend. I had not gone to a meeting. I knew all this about myself, and I I sat and felt sorry for myself the whole weekend. Uh, the first words I said to my husband at the time when I came home was, um, I just went to this workshop, and guess what? I'm an alcoholic. And he said, no, you're not. You just drink too much. He didn't want to admit that, he, that his wife was an alcoholic. And I said, you know, we talked about divorcing, and that's fine if you still want to get divorced. But I said, they told me at this place for this last week that if you live with an alcoholic, you're part of the problem, too. That there's things within yourself, too, that you might want to look at. And I said, I don't know what that is, but, you know, if you want to stay, stay together a little longer and go to this group called Al-Anon, it's suggested. And he thought about it. He said, well, I'll think about it. And he did. He thought, well, if there's something wrong with me, too, I better stay and look at this. So he did, and he went to Al-Anon, and that day I walked into Emily's room, though, and uh, I was about a half hour from my home, and I and she sat down, and she said, well, now tell me, how did you do over the weekend, Denise? And she said, did you drink or not? And I said, no, I did not drink, and um, I'm here to see, and I stayed sober since the last time I saw you. She turned around and phoned a receptionist and said, you can cancel the bed at the treatment center. We got ourselves a willing one here. And I was just kind of shocked. I said, what did you just say? She said, Denise, if you had drank before you came here, then you would have been lacking the main ingredient for sobriety, and that's called willingness. But because you were able to stay sober, even without support, showed that you have the willingness to stay sober. And what I really think you need more than treatment is a very strong woman sponsor and, a, and no less than three to four AA meetings a week. And she said, and you need to get with somebody who knows the big book. And she says, you need to stay and get the strong support of women. And she says, and I think you're going to do just great. After I shared with her my whole story, she said some very important words to me that have really carried me through these years of sobriety. And it was the fact that she said, Denise, you have so much energy, but you're taking all your energy and you're putting it into negative activity. And she said, if you would just, Take all that energy that you have and start doing positive things in your recovery and get in service. And uh, she says, you're going to have one hell of a good recovery program and a wonderful life. And she said, the other thing is there's only three out of a hundred of us make it. And she said, but what I see right now is your willingness. And if you do the things that I've suggested, she said, I know you're going to be one of those three. And when I left her office, I felt so optimistic. And you know what it is that we find, I think, as an alcoholic, is we lose hope. 
I totally had lost hope towards the end of my drinking. I didn't want to drink, but I didn't know how not to drink. And I didn't know where to go. And somehow, somewhere, through some prayer of God, if you're out there, if there's some help, if there's something, and some very lonely Sunday mornings as I sat on my porch smoking a cigarette and looking out into nowhere, wondering where the hell my life was going to take me. I know I asked for help, and I know that I got the hope that I needed. And Alcoholics Anonymous did give me that hope. I came into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I was like many of you. I wasn't cheerful and grateful and glad to be here. Uh, I looked around. I did a lot of judging. Uh, I had a lot of defects of character, and I was trying to project them all over the place to everybody else. Um, I kept isolated. I was very resistant in working the steps. Uh, but eventually, through enough pain, like Dr. Earl talked about earlier, uh, I got in so much pain about eight months of sobriety that I finally got a sponsor and I started working the steps. And I started that existed. And even as a child, I kept thinking the stories they'd be telling me, like, well, how can you say somebody's a god and yet they do all this stuff? It just didn't make sense to me. And that's the kind of deep thinking I used to go through. So when I came into AA and they said, okay, um, you can turn your life and will over to the care of a God of your own understanding. Uh, well, I didn't understand God, so how could I turn anything over to him? And uh, so what I did is I did my search, and I really did a lot of searching about a God of my understanding. And my sponsor was so good, she suggested some reading, and she suggested the prayers of the big book. And I probably, I know I took it to any length. I was one of those people who were so confused about meditation in the morning. I probably had about every book Hazleton and the program and everybody had to buy. And I'm trying to read all this and get it all to sink in. And I happened to talk to someone, um, one of the parish priests, and I asked him how he did it. And he said, well, you tell me first how you do it. How do you do your meditation? And I said, well, I have all these books stacked up, and I have my cup of coffee. And he said, what do you do if the phone rings? I said, well, of course I answer it. He said, okay, this is what you got to do. He says, first of all, get yourself convinced that for the next 20 minutes, no matter what happens, you're going to get quiet. He said, he said, if the phone rings and people really need to get it back in touch with you, they will. You just need to let go of all of that outside stuff and just take one book or one passage and sit and then read it and then think about it. And I thought, that's all? You know, it was like keeping it simple. And through that process and through the prayers and through the third step prayer, I was able to find an understanding of my God. And one of the things I appreciate so much about AA is we still continue to allow that to happen. And it has been the greatest gift because I have a wonderful relationship with God today. I was telling Nancy, too, on the way over, I said, I really do feel like I have a childlike faith because I believe and trust God today so much. And I can't ha help but see it in my life. So much good has happened in my life uh, through a lot of pain and through a lot of uh, things that have been thrown my way to walk through. But through, the, through my relationship with my higher power, I seem to be able to get through those dark hallways pretty good and um, being able to share with you the joys of recovery and what God can, what God can do for us that we can't do for ourselves. And um, I stayed sober in Akron for three years and then I was moved 
after having a second child and leaving my career of 12 years, and then uh, we got transferred to Chicago. And um, I have to tell you about my second child, though. That in itself was a sobriety story. She was a sobriety baby, being three years sober and having Nikki. Um, I was told when I was about four months pregnant with her, right about Christmas time, that uh, she, I had a 50-50 chance of having this child and that I had a physical condition that would naturally abort this child. And the doctor looked up at me and he said, I have no medical help to tell you, to give you or to suggest to you. He said, all I can tell you is if you have a faith, I would definitely pray. And he said, and if you have others who pray with you or could pray for you, I would suggest that. And that was kind of neat coming from this doctor. And so I said, okay. And I was really, I was really sad because, see, the first pregnancy, I thought it was my choice. I want to have a baby and have one or whether I want it or not. Well, it wasn't true the second time around. It was like, I was so powerless over this birth of this child, and I had to go around. I talked to my sponsor, and she said, Denise, this is just another opportunity God's given you to show you how we can pray this baby into the world. And he, she said, I want you to go around to every meeting, and I want you to tell people what's going on. And she said, I want you to ask these rooms full of people to pray for this child to be born. And it was so neat because Nikki was born perfectly uh, perfect, a very feminine little baby, and um, after a very hard labor. And uh, but the doctor looked up at me and he said, "You know what?" He said, "I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to explain this to my colleague." But he said, um, "The condition you had in your body no longer exists, and you have this beautifully born child." And he looked up at me and he says, "If you," he says, "My." I believe you must have a very strong faith because you've had a miracle. And he said, if I were you, I would continue along the lines you're living because it's working for you. And that was such a significant other impact during my recovery for someone to tell me that the faith is working and it's working physically in my life. Since that time, I've endured many other things in sobriety, but I've always been able to get through them, through the moves, through the job changes, uh, through the, the you know, raising children. My daughter, who my oldest daughter, when she was 15, went to a school dance, dropped her off after her, she played softball, never had seen any other signs of her drinking. An hour later, I got a phone call that they could not get my daughter's pulse and that she was drunk and they could not revive her, it seemed, and they were going to have to take her to an emergency room. And they said, if she has a pulse, it's so faint, we're having a hard time picking it up. And I'm just like, I'm just like, so you're telling me this, and, and I'm having a real hard time coping here, even understanding what you're saying. And I think at the time, I, um, let's see, it must have been about uh, nine years of sobriety I had myself. So I'm thinking to myself, man, the, this is just too wild. She was perfect about an hour. And I'm thinking somebody must have done something, given her something she didn't know she was taking. Anyway, I show up at school. They're taking her out on a stretcher. And I looked at her and I thought to myself, what did I do to make this happen? And the inside voice said, you didn't do anything. Stay out of it. It's her story. And I went, whoa, okay, gotcha. So I did what I hear so many times around this program. They say we never go through anything alone. And the first thing I did after I signed which hospital for her to go to 
is I went down to the payphone about a block from the high school and I called my sponsor. And I said, Candy, Jenny's being taken to the emergency room. They can't get her pulse. I need your help. She said, no problem. Where? I'll meet you there in a minute. She was there at the time I arrived, and she sat through the night with me. And the doctor came out after a few hours, and he said to me, which one of you is Mrs. Phoenix? And I said, right here, he said, you're a very lucky lady tonight, very lucky mother. You almost lost your daughter to alcoholic poisoning. She said she was about a half ounce away from her heart stopping. And uh, she drank so much alcohol that uh, she couldn't control any of her body functions. And uh, we pumped her stomach, and uh, we figured she had about a 2.2 alcohol content. And uh, I was just, this was like, you know, when you go through these things, I don't know about you, but I just go into traumatized. I'm just like blank. I don't know what to think or feel or anything. And I went in there and I looked at Jenny when we were allowed to go back in the emergency room and I looked at her and I knew I was visiting her as another alcoholic, not as her mother. And I looked at her as she laid there and tossed around and foam coming out of her mouth and I, she said to me, Mom, I never meant to hurt you. I just don't know how to do life. And I thought, God, that's the same way I felt at her age, but I couldn't tell anybody. And I realized that this was not... Not such a tragedy, but maybe a hope that maybe I could be there for my child when I had no one to be there for me at that age, and I felt so mixed up. So we sat with her, and we took care of her, and they released her about 5 in the morning. They said as long as we stayed with her throughout the night and made sure she remained conscious, because they said it still could trigger, even though they thought they got everything, she still could go into a coma or something. So we stayed with her, and it's amazing because kids, after a tragedy like that, took shower the next day, boy, did she look great. She's ready to go, you know. And uh, she felt very bad, and I really was, I, I really was blown away. I mean, I didn't know how to feel or think for a couple days. And uh, all I knew is that I was so powerless over this child and what might happen. And I was so powerless over whether she'd pick up another drink or she'd kill herself. And that I knew enough by this, by this recovery that I knew that the best thing I could do is guide her to some kind of help, which was counseling. It was suggested by the older women in the program who had seen a lot of kids come in too soon to the program. They might have had one experience like this, and then they came in, and it was much too soon for them, and then it was harder for them to come back in. So I, they suggested I get a good counselor who knew about alcohol and drug dependency. And so Jen went to about six months of counseling, and I remember sharing at a meeting about this experience and how I was sure she might not drink again because of this trauma. You know, I'm saying that I think to ensure myself and make myself feel better, I'm sure. But somebody turned around while I was sharing and said, Denise, remember, she didn't see how bad she was. You saw how bad she was. She had no idea. She was so out of it. She didn't see what it was like or what she looked like or what she was going through. And it was a good reminder to me. We really didn't see ourselves until we were ready to see ourselves. Until we one day looked in the mirror and we couldn't, we couldn't help but not look away and uh, think about what we were doing. And it was right because a year later I got a call from the Danville Police Department that she was once again quite intoxicated on the top of a hill in the family vehicle. And, uh, you know, what did we want to do? Um, some other parents were going to bring her home. And she came home that night and she told me, she said, Mom, even though I didn't want to, I didn't drink for a whole year, every time the kids had parties at school and stuff, 
because I wanted it so bad. And since that time, we've been able to talk, and she knows my recovery. And um, she has had, uh, I can't say that she hasn't drank at all, but she's been, um, I'd say it's tough for our kids when we work recovery, and they, they just they can't go out there and there's free consciousness and just drink and not know what's happening to them. But she just in the last year decided for herself that she was going to put the drinking away and uh, and try to go on it a little bit on her own and um, and not drink because she could see that her, her life was getting so crazy. But the other big trauma, I, I just have to say, I know for us um, to surrender our recovery with or to surrender our attachment to things, to people, to substances is very difficult. And one of my biggest challenges this last year was the letting go of a 21-year marriage and letting go of my attachment, even though the relationship wasn't working for a long time and I knew that in my heart. It was letting go of the, the dreams and the hope that marriage does have. And um, it was a very difficult process. And I, I wouldn't have made it had it not been for the people in this program. And I think what, what it was is because it brought up so many feelings. There was so much feeling around it. I, You know, I knew this was the right thing to go uh, this route. I waited. My sponsor and I tried to do something about five years previous about uh, this, you know, maybe going through a divorce. And she looked at me and she looked how traumatized I was. And she said, Denise, you're not ready. She said, go get yourself ready for this divorce. She says, I know you know this is the right decision, but you're not ready. And this isn't God's timing. She said, I want you to go out. I want you to start preparing yourself. I want you to be prepared to take care. Our program says we are self-supporting through our own contributions. You need to get at yourself a good job that can support you and your girls. You need to go out and you need to pray and you need to start setting up a support group. You need to start getting yourself prepared emotionally. And it did take me those five years to get emotionally prepared to leave this relationship. And I remember finally, it was Christmas of before the August that we separated, and I was standing in the driveway and another crazy thing happened in the relationship, and God spoke to me again. He said, Denise, don't you think it's about time you leave? And I knew at that point it was absolutely the right timing to go. And so I thought, I just encourage you through prayer and meditation, you will get your answers. It's kind of like what Earl said again. We don't have to make things happen. They will happen in God's time. And they will happen with peace and serenity. My ex-husband and I today, and I know uh, it shocks my sponsor of all people, um, we're getting along. We have a friendship today. Um, Father's Day is coming up, and I plan on sending him a Father's Day card and telling him, thank him for being such a wonderful father through this process because it's just as important for those girls to know that he's there for them as it is for me to be raising them on a day-to-day -day basis. And um, and it's the right decision for us. But it wasn't my timing. It was God's timing. And um, it was interesting because there was a lot of stress. We had to live in our home together. You can imagine an alcoholic knowing they're going to go somewhere, knowing they're going to do something, but staying stuck because financially we could not afford to leave our house. We both All our money was in this house. We needed to sell the house before we could even go and afford two places to live. And the house took forever, it seemed, to, to sell. Anyway, we're in, um, about a, the, in December, I left in December after Christmas and moved out on my own last year. 
he, um, in November, right at the, the day before Thanksgiving, collapsed in the bathroom of our home. And he had a serious illness with his, his colon and his intestines and had to go in for major surgery. And once again, I was called by God to do something that was very uh, difficult at the time, but it turned out to be a blessing. And what I had to do was take this man to the emergency, you know, call the paramedics, go to the emergency room, sit there while he had his surgery, be supportive of him, put those ice chips in his mouth and love him unconditionally. And that was, I know at the time, I just prayed to God that I could fill the role that he was asking me to fill. Because I knew at the time when you're going through that, all you, all you want to do is split and get out of there, get on with your life. And I was asked one more time to please Denise. Um, the message I got through, after some meditation was, only a loving way works. Only a loving way works. And so I know I was asked by God to stay there and finish that relationship and leave it lovingly. Not to leave it in resentment and, and anger or um, some disappointing fashion, but to be able to be there for him and to leave it lovingly. And uh, so that was a gift. And I think it, it prepared us to move on and go our own way. Um, I'm very grateful to the recovery. I'm very grateful to be of service. Uh, things do happen in God's time. I don't always work a perfect program, but when I work the program the way that was designed, it does work perfectly. And, um, you know, we are all so blessed. We are blessed to be out here. We are blessed to be free from the very illness that was just taking everything away from us. Not only our health and our our sanity, but our self-respect, our self-esteem, our ability to, to take advantage of the gifts and the people that we were born to be. And uh, I encourage each one of you to keep coming back. There is a lot of truth to that, because when I was going through those difficult times, if I didn't keep coming back to a group who knew me and knew what it was like when Denise was going at a good pace and doing well, to seeing me when I was in my worst of times, uh, I might not have pulled through it as well. And I know I had a lot of support from a lot of people. Even the people I didn't think was lifting or paying attention would come up and pat me on the shoulder or give me a hug. And I know last year another thing happened, and I'll end with this, is I was asked to be of service um, at the speaker meeting there on Saturday night in Danville. And I know it's a big responsibility. And um, I went into this meeting on Sunday afternoon I was supposed to tell the current secretary if I was willing to take the responsibility over because they were going to pass it on to the next vote and pass it on. And I went in there and I said, you know, God, I, don't, I just don't want to get, I just went through so much in my life. Maybe I just need a big break not to be involved in anything this strongly. And I said, but I don't know what to say. Could you give me a sign what I should tell Paul when I go to this meeting? And I sat down at the meeting and here was a group I went to all the time. I knew everybody there. I mean, they were good friends, too. And I sat down, and I felt distant from every single person in that room. And it scared the hell out of me. And I said, okay, I get you. You better do this service, because this is what's up for you. And so the best thing I can say is when you're feeling not connected, don't don't let it get the best of you. Take, you know, help out. Stay after. Dump out the coffee. Uh, go to someone for coffee. Just do something of service and those feelings will leave you. And you will feel connected again. Um, we Our connection is such a gift. 
And, uh, I, you know, I don't know a lot of you, and some of you I do know. And I know that if I sat down two minutes with any of you that I didn't know, we'd know each other in two minutes. It's not, it's not difficult in Alcoholics Anonymous to join and be joined together. And uh, I just want to thank you for the privilege of being here today. I want to encourage you to keep coming back. And I want to uh, encourage you to be of service in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I just want to say I love you all. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.